Welcome to the Cross Loganville's podcast channel. Thanks for joining us as we continue our series on How, Discovering God's Heart for His People. So here would be my question as we start today. I don't want you to think about this. Are you afraid of dying? Are you afraid of it? And do you find yourself avoiding conversations regarding death? I had a friend tell me years ago, Tim, I'm not afraid of being dead. I'm just afraid of getting dead. And I think for a lot of us, that getting dead piece can create some anxiety. I think for many of us, we think that that getting dead piece is going to hurt. But I started thinking through this. Is our real struggle the fear of dying, or is the deeper struggle inside of our hearts living a life of no purpose, living a life with no hope, or living a life with no peace? What is the deeper struggle? Let me illustrate it this way. This past week, we were going to have our fall fest here on Thursday night. And so for Dustin and Nick and Steve and our entire team, uh, we were wondering, what, what, what's going to happen I got on the Weather Channel, pulled up the forecast the other day on Wednesday, and I'm like, it's raining. Based on the forecast for Thursday and the radar, it was going to rain and even rain more. As I looked at the forecast, it didn't create fear inside of me because deep down inside, I'm like, I can't avoid what's going to happen. Based on the forecast, it's raining and it's going to rain more. We're told in Scripture that the soul that sins will surely die. The soul that sins will surely die. Sin means to miss the mark, the mark of God's perfection, the mark of being totally holy. God says, be holy, be perfect, keep my word, keep my ways. And I'm like, man, I've jacked that up. We're told in Scripture that the wages of sin is death. The price that you're going to pay one day for sin is going to be death. And I conclude, I've sinned. I will die one day. One out of one will die. When you start to dive into the death narrative, it's not an if question. It's really a when question. And, and part of even our study as we dive into Scripture, Hebrews says, it's appointed to man to die once and then stand before God in the judgment. And I'm like, I'm a man, I have sinned, I will die, and I will stand before God. It's a logical conclusion, which means this, just as the forecast said, it's going to rain, the forecast says, you're going to die. Now, to admit it, is much more difficult. But how many of us really believe in this room, hey, I'm going to die one day? And so my question really would be, why should I fear what I know is going to happen? It's going to happen. When? I don't know. How? I, I, I don't know. But I can tell you this after walking with the Lord for 34 years. Nothing is more painful. Nothing is more emotional and nothing is more final than the death of a loved one. And so whether you've 
been confronted with this with a parent or with a child or potentially a spouse or even a close friend, death is one of the most difficult experiences that you will go through. I look at my friend whose son died when he was about nine months old. So painful. How do we process this? My friends Smith and Julie, I will never forget. December 23rd, about 14 years ago, and little Jackson ran behind the car of his grandmother, and she backed over him. And when I got to the hospital at 10 o'clock that night, Smith was holding that little body waiting for Scottish Rite to come where they could harvest the organs. And as I started going through this, I'm like, man, it's a different kind of pain. And as you sit and as you reflect, oftentimes we find ourselves reliving that last visit we had with that person or reliving that last conversation or that last meal or that last holiday And then at times, because the emotions are so extreme, we find ourselves laughing one minute and crying the next minute, and we hold on to that photo, dazed, numb, and we're having to wear it and face it, that this is really real. And and we're overwhelmed with grief in the moment. All of us who have been through the death narrative with somebody that we love, we find ourselves overwhelmed with grief. And as I said, the emotions are so scattered and the thoughts run so wild. And no matter what you thought you could do, whether it was a a sudden death or even a terminal illness that lasted, it's almost like nothing or nobody can totally prepare you for the way that you feel. And I've done funerals. I've buried my grandfather. I've buried both of my grandmothers and did their funerals. I've buried three of my aunts. I've buried my uncle. I've buried and done funerals. And I look around at that time, and people were processing in different ways. And it, it, it is interesting to me as a culture. It's interesting as a culture that so little has been taught and so little has been offered to us to train us on how to deal with death, but one out of one dies. There's a model that talks about the stages of grief, and the stages of grief are kind of unique. This was really written years ago for a person who had been given the word that you've got terminal cancer or you're going to die, but it It almost breaks down the various stages of denial, and then anger, and then depression, and then this bargaining and negotiating with God before we reach a place where we go, I I accept it. But even people that are dealing with the death of a loved one, of a family member, of someone, they go through the various stages of grief. My son Benji married into a family, and Jeff and Jamie, his in-laws, had to bury their five-year-old Levi as he battled cancer and leukemia. I was like, how did you deal with that? I remember my friend Tim Hewlett, when I was doing chapel ministry in 
was involved in professional baseball. Tim was playing with the Baltimore Orioles. They were on a road trip playing the Chicago White Sox. Tim and Linda had four boys. And Tim gets called out of the dugout up to the manager's office. And it's like, Tim, your, your son Sam has been hit by a car. And he's on life support at John's. Hopkins, you've got to get on a plane and fly back immediately. And I remember walking through that with Tim years ago. And Tim was so devastated. But he said one of the hardest things he's ever had to do in his life was not only seeing his little boy lay there, but having to okay the unplugging of his son. I remember walking through that with Tim. We were talking about a week later, and he said, you know what has really just troubled my heart? He said, people that mean well, that have even good intentions, are driving me crazy. And I said, what do you mean? He said, if I have another person quote Romans 8.28 right now, I'm going to lose my mind. And I said, I hear you. But, but for so many of us, we don't know how to process the death narrative, guys. We really don't. And even with our good intentions, oftentimes we show up and we're like, hey, all things work together for good to those who love God. And then we start to quote 2 Corinthians that, hey, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I, I just don't know if we know how to feel. And I don't know if we know how to walk through the death narrative with other people. 2 Samuel 18 gives us kind of the portrait of a grieving parent. It's David, after his son Absalom was killed, Absalom is trying to take over the kingdom. David is king of Israel. Absalom is a reckless madman. He's bought into the conspiracy of Ahithophel and other people. You ought to be the man. And Absalom, he's reckless and he's crazy and he's mad. And David knew that one of the possibilities was, my son, they're going to kill him. And even when David gets word that we had to take him out, he's dead. 2 Samuel 18, verse 33 says, The king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears. And he cried, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, my son, my son and here's what I know. Death shakes us to the core. The movie Fifth Quarter is based on a true story. And Barb got to be friends with Luke, the kid who was killed at 15 over in Marietta. Uh, Marietta. He went to Harrison High School. But, but it's based on a true story. And I remember watching that, and my heart broke and I'm like, here this kid is 15 years old, and time is gone. And I would encourage you to watch that movie. It's a very interesting, well-done movie. But the scene of the dad, when he begins to push his son's casket up into the front of the chapel, it wore me out. And it got me thinking this week, over the last few weeks even, when do I remember kind of going back and really starting to ponder or be confronted, or try to process death, if you will. There were things that happened in my earlier days with a grandpa dying, or, 
whatever, but I didn't know how to process it. And I started thinking this week, when, when was the first time you really got hit with it? And I was like, I was around 15, 16 years old. And I'll never forget one of the kids, I was well into sports, but one of the kids I played ball with was a kid by the name of Chris Jackson. And I'll never forget getting the word that Chris had gone over to a neighbor's house late one night and he wanted to go swimming and he dove into this pool, no one else was around, and he busted his head, knocked him out, and he drowned. And I was like, wow. And back then, the funeral home, when they had a body, this was back in the late 70s, they would leave the funeral home open all day and you could just go in at any time. Now we've kind of got these visiting hours. But I'll never forget as a 16-year-old guy walking in, I drove up to the funeral home, there were really no cars there, and I walked into the funeral home there in Noonan. And I'm like, I don't even know what to think. I don't know how to process this. I have no clue of how to make sense of it. And Russell, I walked into that room. Nobody was in the room, but just this casket. And I remember walking up, and he's dead. And I'm looking at this kid. He's got a knot on his head, and his body is lifeless. And I'm like, how do you process this? I was lost. I didn't walk with the Lord. I had no context for any type of thoughts or feelings. But I'm like, how do I process this? I was 19 years old. I had just completed my second year in college playing ball. And one of the kids I grew up with was a kid by the name of Charles McClendon. And I got word that Charles, he was in the army. He was stationed over in Germany. Charles was killed. And Charles was my bro. Charles was my boy. And I'll never forget getting the phone call where his grandmother who raised him, they lived in the projects in the hood, she goes, Charles loved you. Charles loved your family. Tim, would you be a ball bearer? I'm like, Charles, crab apple. I mean, we were on the same little league team. We won our region when we were 12, and we were going to play in the state. And we were preparing to go play in the state championship. And Charles, straight out of the projects. I'll never forget. He looked at us when we got on the bus that day and he goes, y'all got swimsuits or y'all got shawl britches? It's like he was from the projects. He was from the hood. He had no money. I remember going by many days and dad did drywall and Charles would jump on the back of the truck. We would sit on sheetrock buckets going to the ballpark, me and Charles. We played basketball together. We got ready to go to that state championship thing. I'll never forget. He, he brought a jar of crab apples. And his grandmother had supposedly with him a couple days before picked these things and had pickled them. Them things needed to sit for a while. But Charles goes, man, I brought us some crab apples. Them things were so bitter. And we started calling him crab. That became his nickname. He's dead. He's dead. And on Pinson Street in Noonan, there's an old church. And I remember it was late July, and the humidity and heat was brutal. And as we walked into that church, came in the back, and there was that casket sitting in the front. It was hot, no AC. You remember the old fans they would give way back? And I remember just sitting there, just bawling my eyes out. He's dead. I had no context. I had no hope. I had... 
no way to process it. Devastated me. The next summer, I had a job working for the city of Noonan. My job with the city of Noonan was I cut grass at the cemetery. And I remember I would push a more. A buddy of mine had a weed eater and another guy had a ride and lawnmower. And my job all summer was I just cut around tombstones. And I remember oftentimes just stopping and just looking at date of birth and dash and then bam. Man, I wonder what happened. And during that summer, Bo Barron, Bo was a bodybuilder. Bo was a teen USA bodybuilder guy. Good looking kid, blonde, blue eyes, shredded. Bo had a car wreck and the steering wheel killed caved him in. Bo graduated a year before I did. So I'm all in this window of time for me was this context of death. And I remember every day at 1130 a.m. while I was out there cutting grass at the cemetery, that same car would pull up and stop right there by Bo's grave. And his dad would get out and just would stand there for 15 to 30 minutes and just hang out at the grave. How do you process it? How do you deal with it? And I had no context at that time to understand anything. And the more I've walked through this, and I want you to process some of those first experiences that you had. How do you deal with it? And one of the things I've come to conclude is it's normal to feel alone. Death is one of the most loneliest experiences that you'll ever have. And one of the unique things is death is individual. Death is very unique to you. I've been around funeral homes, and I've been around death, and I've heard people come up and say, I know how you're feeling. You don't know how I'm feeling. You may know how you felt when you went through tragedy, trauma, or death, but the truth is... You feel alone. And you can even be in the room of people with noise and people talking, and you feel so alone because death has broken you. And I've thought about it, and I've read about it. But as a culture, we do not teach people how to mourn. We do not teach people how to grieve. We do not teach people how to process it. And for so many people, they have no context of negative or painful emotions. They just suppress it, never address it. And we live in this culture, it's almost like the mission in our culture is don't feel too deeply, don't hurt. We don't want you to hurt too bad. And there's always these people coming around trying to sedate and medicate. I'll never forget one of the ladies in our church, her son was killed in a car wreck and we get there at 6.45 in the morning. He was killed at 4.30 a.m. and Barb and I get there and all these neighbors were showing up and their intent was right. But so many of them were just coming, handing her a handful of pills and a handful of pills. And I remember Barb and another girl took them and they flushed them down the toilet. And they're like, stop. We, 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 we know you're hurting, but we don't know how to feel. We don't know how to process deep hurt. We don't know how to process anything. So, so we're going to try to take the edge off of it. And I'm sure at times it can be okay. But I think the overriding theme inside of our culture is don't hurt, don't feel pain, don't feel anything. We want you to stay numb. And as I've processed this over the years, Kevin, one of the things I really do believe is when 
you get there, one of the greatest things that you can do is to say, how are you? How are you feeling? How can I serve you? People oftentimes say, I don't even know what to say. Then don't say anything because I can promise you six months later, a year later, and five years later, they're not going to remember what you said. They're going to remember the fact that you were, you were there. This is a very interesting concept from a Jewish perspective, but there is a phrase in Judaism in the Jewish practice of dealing with death and trauma and tragedy, and it's called tikkun olam. And I would introduce you to this because I think it's so powerful. The phrase tikkun Olam actually means the healing of the world, and it's accomplished by presence in the midst of pain. It's not spoken. It's the fact that, hey, I'm here. I love you. It's unspoken. I'm just willing to be in the presence of your pain. And it's almost like unspoken. You're there. I'll hurt with you. I'll cry with you. I'm a safe shoulder. I'll help carry your burdens. I'll walk with you through this. I don't have to have any answers. I just want to have tikkun olam. I just want to practice the presence of being there and bringing healing to the moment. I think even when you start to study Judaism and Shiva and people sit there at times and they'll hang for a week and kids don't go to school and Parents don't go to work, and they don't take baths, and they go barefooted, and they will, we're not even going to look at ourselves in the mirror, and we're, we're just going to hurt and struggle through this. And I think, Dan, one of the greatest things that we can do is to teach and coach our families and our people of tikkun, olam. Heidi, when your dad passed away sudden, it was like, I don't need a lot of people giving me the right answers. You willing to be a shoulder I can cry on? Willing to walk with me right now? Now, one of the interesting things when you go back and even from a scriptural standpoint, death was not a part of God's original plan. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, do you realize that death is the enemy? Death is the enemy of everything good and beautiful, if you will. Death was not part of God's original plan. The soul that sins will die, but the perfection in the Garden of Eden was a beautiful thing. And here's, here's, here's what I want you to hear. Death should make us sad, but death should also make us righteously angry. And death should be a reminder that I do live in a broken world and sin disrupted humanity at every level, this is not the way God intended it. As I've studied and processed, I'm like, death is an enemy, but the enemy one day will die. Paul, even in 1 Corinthians 15, says, 21, for since by a man came death, Adam, the Adamic nature that we were all born into, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die. In Christ all will be made alive. For Jesus must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished 
is death. Tim, do you believe that Jesus has defeated death all in the grave? Yes. Do you believe that when he rose from the dead, he conquered death all in the grave? I do. But do you really believe that humanity will still experience death until Christ comes again? Yes. Do you really believe, Tim, that one day children will no longer mourn and grieve their parents? I do. Do you, do you believe a day is coming, Tim, when parents will no longer grieve their kids? I do. You believe the day is coming where there's no more grieving widows and grieving friends? And I, I, I do. Why? Because I have hope in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. I process it now differently as I look back at Chris and Charles and Bo and so many others. I'm like, and I didn't know this. I didn't have this. I couldn't experience this then. But now because of Christ living in me, the hope of glory, I now have Emmanuel. I have God with me, God walking beside me. Now through the power of the Holy Spirit, I have God living inside of me so that no matter where I'm at and what I'm going through, Christ is in me. The power and the presence and the perspective that only our Lord can give you, I can promise you, we have hope in Jesus' name. I was pondering Isaiah 53 where it says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. And one of the most hopeful things for me is no matter what I'm going through, I've got a friend, a counselor, a confidant. I've got one in Jesus who says, I understand sorrow. I understand grief. I understand betrayal. And for me, his presence makes it possible. And as I start to process this time and time again, how are you going to deal with this? Well, I'm, I'm going to deal with it because I got hope in Jesus, and I'm going to live in the context of the reality of the moment, but I'm going to promise you one thing. My master and my savior and my friend Jesus, one day, he will end physical death forever. And I'm longing for that day. It, it really does create the mindset that I do want to live every day with eternity as the backdrop. Eternal life doesn't start when I die and walk into his presence. Eternal life started the day I was actually physically born, but it became so much more of a vibrant reality the day I was born again in Christ. Once I was born physically, it was a given. You're going to live forever. You're either going to live forever connected with God in the presence of God, or you're going to live alienated and separated from God. Live with eternity as your backdrop. Live with the reality that you're going to stand before God one day, Tim. You're going to give an account. Revelation 21.1 20, uh, says, I saw a new heaven. I saw the holy city. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride dressed beautifully for her husband and heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death and no more sorrow, no more crying or pain. All of these will be gone forever. And I long for the day where we're in the presence of God, 
basking in the glory, new heaven, new Jerusalem. There's no more crying. There's no more death. The last enemy has been thoroughly dealt with once and for all. So let me coach you and encourage you with some things. Think about it. Please think about it. Process the death narrative. Don't dismiss it. Even my friend Sandy had posted something about death and how we've got to feel what we're feeling. We've got to process this. We need to, we need to look at this and pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. How are you going to walk with people? What can you do? Death leaves us grieving, Craig. When you bury your little nine-month-old dude, man, it leaves you grieving. It leaves you heartbroke. And you're trying to process it. And deep down inside, I mean, it's like, what else can I have done? And all of us, if we're not careful, we get just attacked with the what ifs. What, what if I'd said? What, what if I'd done? What if I would have showed up more? What if I hadn't have done that? And for so many of us, we, we beat ourselves up like we could have suspended the inevitable. It's like, no, it, it, it hurts. But as you're working through this at times, and we've been through this as we walk with people, Death can bring people together, and death can even cause more separation amongst families. I've seen healing, and I've seen fights. I've seen restoration and almost elimination of relationship. I've seen it. I've been inside those rooms where people are trying to figure out, how are are we going to do this? Nothing prepares you. Nothing. And, and I promise you, you're not weak. And, and you're not crazy if you start to forecast this is going to happen. I remember years ago, I sat down about 20 plus years ago, and I wrote out my funeral. And I was sharing with my dad. I said, Dad, I wrote out my funeral. This one less thing Barb and the kids would have to deal with. But, Dad, I wrote it out. Have you ever written out your funeral? He said, I don't want to talk about it. Why not? I've dealt with families that people were terminal and sick. And it's like, did you guys get a plan in place? And how does your will look? And did you guys contact the funeral home? And have you guys got any plan? And no. And then, bam, it hits. And I remember walking through this with many people, sitting down with a funeral home director a day after the death, and it's a whole new, it's a whole new assignment of pain and chaos. What do I do? I want to be able to objectively make some decisions before I check out that takes the pressure off of the ones living. So what can you do? You're dealing with it? Be honest about how you feel. Don't be plastic and fake. We live in a culture that says, hey, fake it until you make it. No, feel it. Process it. (sighs) What am I really struggling with? Write down your thoughts. We're told even in Scripture, cast all your care on him because he cares for you. Come to him if you're tired, weary. He'll give you rest. One of the greatest things that we can do is to be honest about how we feel. Again, I'm not 
anti-medical world, but your first option should not be medicate and sedate, please. How are you feeling? Let's walk through it. Let's build community. Does it help it at times for certain people? Yeah, but it's the number one option in our culture oftentimes. Stop it. The second thought I would share with you would be this. Know that true comfort can be found. 2 Corinthians 1 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us with his comfort in the midst of this. I'm not going to have to go through this all along. He has the power to bring comfort in the midst of heartache. I'm like, Lord, I need you. I think one of the greatest things that each and every one of us can say is, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need you. You know, somebody going through it right now, somebody that's limping, somebody that's struggling, somebody that's wanting to throw the towel in, please process this. Three, lean into godly counseling, godly friends. It does help. Now, there's, again, well-meaning people that's going to show up in their intense, right? Just, shh, just hush. I'll never forget reading through the book of Job, and I was like, Job, your buddies were so cool for the first seven days, and then they opened their stinking mouth. And sometimes when a person dies and it's the immediate tragedy and pain, it's like, what book can I give them to read? They don't want to read a book right now. Their mind is not there yet. It's like some of the greatest things that we can do, back to Tikkun Olam, is the healing of the world is presence in the midst of pain. Hey, I, I'm, I'm going to be with you. One of the hardest things, and my buddy Tim Hewlett taught me this when Sam was killed years ago. He said one of the things that he and Linda had to focus on was be thankful. Even in the midst of grief, God creates opportunities for you to show gratitude. God is going to give you things to be thankful for. Even in the midst of your pain and your hurt and your uncertainty and adversity, I promise you, if we stop and go, you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for the friends. Lisa Slade, Nick, our worship pastor, a few weeks back, Lisa's sister, a young girl, 33, 34, whatever she was, she passed away. And Nick was telling me this week as we started talking through this, he said, the people in our church that came there, that brought food, that just sat there, that set up shop, that, that took out trash and just kind of hung out. He said it blew the other people's minds, the family from California and Colorado, whatever that came in. He said they were looking going, wow. And Lisa said, my, my church family ministered to me. They loved on me. And can I tell you something? She is still processing the grief and trying to make sense of the death of her baby sister. But there's things to be thankful for. And I do believe it's healthy to celebrate eternity. I'm not saying that we come in and try to dismiss the pain of the moment and start quoting all these scripture that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And hey, praise God, they're not suffering anymore. All of that is probably true. And there's probably a time to process it. But sometimes, Benji, when you're dealing with the death of a loved one, I remember walking into that chapel that night and all these people were there and I'm like, I'm going to sit over here in the corner and keep my eyes on him and when everybody else has gone through the line, 
I'm going to make sure he, he's okay. But I'm just going to sit back here and just look. And we're going to get eye contact a few times, Benji. But I'm just looking at you. Are you okay? Are you processing it? How are you hanging? It's like, are you living with eternity as the backdrop? Yeah. I'll close you with this. 1 Thessalonians 4, God's perspective on our grief. He says, I want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. One of the things I think oftentimes amongst even conservative evangelicals is they think that grieving is a sign of weakness and it really is a sign of not trusting God. Even when the Lord would allow Paul to write this to the church in Thessalonica. He's writing, saying, hey, your, your dad, your, your spouse, the, that friend was sold out. Hey, I'm writing to you. I want you to know what's going to happen. But I want you to grieve. And I want you to grieve thoroughly. But we're not going to grieve as those who have no hope. I mean, for the Jewish people, Jesus, in their mind, is not Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah. And for some, Barb was saying to me this week, the family in Toronto that she was close to, she said when there was a death of a loved one, she said the wailing and the mourning and the pain, there's no hope beyond the grave. And I'm like, Jesus, you have defeated death, hell, and the grave. There is hope beyond the grave. Here's some conclusions. We live in a world that is flooded with sin that has disrupted pretty much all humanity at all levels. And we have hope, oh, as followers of Christ, that we've repented of our sin and placed our faith and confidence in Christ, that we can live a life of hope, a life of peace, a life of joy, and a life of purpose. We believe that God is not only with us, but we believe that God is inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We do know that one day all sickness and pain and sorrow would be dealt with once and for all. But we truly believe, we truly believe that we have hope. This is the contemplation here at the end for you. Okay? Please. I've been at funerals. I've been asked to do funerals where there was no obvious fruit in the person's life that died. I've been at these places, and they're like, well, he walked an aisle and prayed a prayer years ago, but to me, root produces fruit. Let there be no guessing at your memorial funeral. Please do not put the pastor in a position to lie. What will be your legacy? What will you be known for? And this is not a fear-based thing. It's just living with reality. If God today were to say, Tim, give me back my breath, what is my testimony? What is the legacy? What was the truth about my earthly narrative? As my friend Crawford Laritz said, when a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. I'm going to die. 
and there'll be another person that he raises up, and there'll be another person that he raises up. The truth is, when a, a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. I'm going to raise somebody else up. And probably a couple of days after the last bite of potato salad has been eaten, people find their own rhythm and norm again and go, yeah, we're going to miss him. But oh yeah, life goes on. What's going to be your legacy? Every person is going to die, but not every person will live. And even as I sit here and think about it today, there's people in this room, you go, I'm not alive. And we want to see you fully alive in Christ. We want to see you processing the brevity of your own existence. And I want to see you fully alive. Thank you so much for watching the message today. We hope that this message inspired you and challenged you as you watched it. I encourage you to check out our website. It's thecrossloganville.org. There's a lot of information about our church there uh, that maybe can help you answer some questions about who we are. And don't forget that on our website, we have old messages and archived series. So you can spend a lot of time there learning and exploring. If you have any questions, you can contact us via the web or you could call us at the church at 770-554-3322. Thanks again for watching.